Welcome to Owned by Everyone, a series of eight podcasts recorded at an extraordinary two-day conference held at the end of March 2023. Our venue was the seminar room at the Cambridge Conservation Initiative in Cambridge University's David Attenborough Building. Speakers stayed at Pembroke College, which also hosted a conference dinner with our speaker, the leading campaigner for our waters, Fergal Sharkey. The subject which drew us together under a phrase come banner owned by everyone first unfurled in 1985 by Ted Hughes, poet laureate and a great environmental advocate and activist for his beloved rivers and their wild fish, is the wonder, plight and future of chalk streams. What made our discussions extraordinary? Well, those who spoke and the timing of what they said. Ninety women and men met after nearly three years of planning to bring an unprecedented range of experience, expertise and passion to a subject more and more of the public now know is as urgent as the chalk streams themselves are valuable. We aimed in the talks we gave and the discussion that followed for a clarity to match chalk stream water flowing at its best. So we wanted to share them with a much larger audience than our venue could accommodate. With everyone, in fact. With children of all ages. That is, anyone who can feel that wonder. With policymakers and those responsible for making decisions about our use and abuse of the hugely undervalued but life-giving element of water in each of our homes and in the Mother of Parliaments. We hope you find these talks refreshing, stimulating, enraging by turns, and ultimately that you want to act on what you hear. Thanks for listening. On yesterday. Okay. Just to say that Mark and I were exchanging, well, we didn't actually exchange emails, but we both discovered that we were so stimulated by yesterday we could not sleep, nor was Mark down there, apparently. So we were up sort of reading emails and flapping around at a very early hour this morning. So I hope you all felt similarly um, stimulated by yesterday, and particularly by, by last night's film and readings, which was just wonderful. Um, <clears throat> I was going to think about how to what, what some of my highlights were. One was because I couldn't sleep. I was remembering Adam's story about the waterkeeper mm. and the wonderful notion that you should become agitated by sea trout because they keep you awake at night <laughs> by flapping <laughs> their tails on the surface of the <laughs> bang, bang, bang. I also, um, in my sleepless state, heard the Margaret Atwood quote last night. I heard Margaret talking about her, her which I, I Adam said yesterday that the thing she was most frightened of as a child was a flushing toilet. <laughs> and she does, she is, uh, she's so inimical. Um, but I also just wanted very quickly to reflect on, I did two things yesterday, I think we were all very moved by. One was Jack's films, and two was Mark, well, we moved by everything, but I'm just reflecting on those, Jack's extraordinary films. And... Um, 
and, and also Mark Dando's wonderful drawings and demonstration of how he creates them by layering up from pencil drawings. And it put me in mind, forgive me, of J.A. Baker and a wonderful quote from Baker, which is that he says that the hardest thing of all to see is what is really there. And also that um, that quote is about looking closely, observing closely, observing the living bird. And it struck me thinking about that and about, you know, with so much talk yesterday of observing closely water, the living environment. This is what we're all caring about. And though this isn't quite what um, what Baker meant, but he goes on to talk about following the, the, the peregrine. He says, it's always thinking back. It's always sinking back, always at the edge of my vision, at the risk of being lost. And I think there's something very powerful there. And I, I felt yesterday there were a couple of things that came out very strongly. One was this, the power of close observation. Two was the issue of attentiveness and the challenge of time. We're so struggling with time, and that's a consequence. So much of the debate becomes truly polarised. Anyway, just a couple of reflections on yesterday. Actually, another another quick thought. Um, this afternoon, we will we'll be joined at lunchtime by Tony Juniper, who many of you know is the, is the chair of Natural England. And Tony will chair our last session. But Amy Jane Beer and Stephen Tompkins have kindly been acting as rapporteurs of the meeting. So if you have anything that you would particularly like to have included in a piece of report back to the meeting, approach Stephen and or Amy. But we'll also have an open discussion, of course, with the whole audience. So it falls to me with enormous thanks to introduce Fiona Reynolds, who is going to chair our first session. Fiona, as many of you know, was former Director General of the National Trust, former Master of Emmanuel, and is currently in the extraordinarily potentially powerful position, I guess, of chairing the National Audit Office, the NAO. And um, <laughs> from a brief conversation, clearly finding that a fascinating role. So I'll hand over to Fiona and thank you very much for supporting us like this in a very busy life. I'll take the floor for a second to say, um, sorry, I wasn't here yesterday. Um, uh, it sounds to me as if you had an extraordinary meeting and the energy in the room is already hmm. so I'm really looking forward to this session, which is about barriers. So I think yesterday you opened everything up. Now we're today going to look at the, the real barriers to change and the issues that are getting in the way of progress. So Hadrian first. And I thought he was going to talk about water meadows, victims yes. or saviors. So where's Hadrian? Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me and, and organizing this market. Uh, very interesting. Uh, I was saying over breakfast this morning that uh, I was concerned many years ago with the Rural Economy and Land Use Programme. We thought we were wacky, engaging sort of natural scientists, ecologists, agricultural scientists and so on with social scientists. But now things are moving on a lot more uh, and we've got people uh, in the humanities and the creative side involved as well. Because the whole thing is, I think, to lift up the awareness of rivers and the wider landscape and so on. So anyway, I'm starting by I'm starting by answering the uh, rhetorical question: Water meadows, victims or saviors? Obviously, they're victims of something, mainly agricultural change. Uh, and saviors, what can they do for us? A bit like the Romans or something like that. Uh, and that's my motivating picture. You might recognise the cathedral. That's our cathedral at Salisbury. Slightly ugly flats in the way, but. Most importantly, providing a foreground for John Constable and other people's paintings and drawings is, of course, uh, a series of things called water meadows. 
Now, of course, a class of children, you get engaged with this, and you ask, what's wrong with that? Why can't you play football on it? And things like that. But not going to do that with you. But what we've got here is clearly uh, a man-made landscape, or human-made landscape, I should say, uh, almost counterintuitive behaviour of the water. It's running along the tops of bridges. Uh, and obviously, we've got other structures there. That happens to be a hay cart bridge. And the plan is it trickles through the grass. It doesn't pour over or anything like that. It's not a tsunami. It trickles through the grass. Uh, that's about one inch, 25 mils, and as I say, it does the magic like that. I also want to call out, of course, some of my partners in crime down here. Some of those names will be familiar to you. I won't go through them all, but just to say, of course, I owe an awful debt of gratitude to Roger Cutting and Cathy Stern, who in the past have been my PhD students. Let's go to the definitions a bit more. First and foremost, of course, a water meadow is a system of grassland irrigation which is operated at the discretion of the farmer. Well, we can that, add that on to the whole idea that it's a highly constructed landscape. It's, it's engineered. It's, a, it's 17th century engineering, if you like. Um, and it for, forces an early bite of grass. That's The grass will grow typically up to a month earlier than it might have done on an ordinary floodplain meadow. It's part of integrated water management in Wessex. I will be touching on this as I will be, of course, also touching on uh, operational aspects of the meadows as well. And the mechanisms through the magic I ascribe to are soil warming. Believe it or not, in the winter, it's still warm enough to make certain grass species like a cross disc climate, like five and a half degrees Celsius. Oxygenation, you have to keep the water moving. Um, and of course, nutrient addition. We've done a lot of work on that. And we've been talking about nutrients a lot, good and bad. We distinguish it uh, in river valleys and coastal areas from flood meadows, where periodic flooding occurs when a river exceeds its bankful discharge. You'll all be aware nationwide of hay meadows and things like that. Well, the water meadow could typically give you two cuts of grass in the summer, whereas an ordinary flood meadow like that might only give you one. But also very important for biodiversity. And then finally, grazing marshes, where I started cutting my teeth in Halbergate in Norfolk and then later in Romney Marsh, are of course areas where a shallow water table is manipulated by means of a network of ditches and they provide technically known as sub-irrigation water from underneath. All three very different systems. Uh, and a lot of work, when I was a young academic, many years ago had been done, of course, on the last two, and nobody had been mad enough to look at the first ones, because if you think about it, you know, it's a, it's a sort of symbol of Englishness. Why do you start putting water over an area of grass to make it grow when it's cold and wet in the winter anyway? Read on. This is a cartoon courtesy of Hampshire County Council. There are hillside systems of water meadows, which I haven't got time to go into. But the ones I'm going to be talking about are the ones you saw at the beginning, so-called bedworks. The water comes off the river. It's controlled by a series of patches and sluices and all the rest of it. And it comes down here along the tops of the bedworks and bedworks stop. We call this the nose of the bedwork. And they're called panes, like a window pane on either side. And the whole thing is, as I say, made to or sort of make the water flow through the grass, which also, I'll come to later, has a filtration function from the point of view of water quality as well. And all sorts of wonderful things are here in terms of sort of post-medieval industrial archaeology or agricultural archaeology, if there is such a thing. Things like aqueducts you find all over the place, hatch pools, all sorts of things like that. It's absolutely wonderful. One of my fellow drowners uh, often refers to this uh, as, as a sort of wet train set. 
I have explained to him, because I've got A-level physics, I have explained to him that water and electricity don't mix very well, but he's, he's not dissuaded by this as well. Right, uh, we've heard about uh, chalk Wiltshire. And again, uh, I don't want to go into great details here because you've heard a lot about the chalk aquifer, but it's up to about 400 metres thick in our neck of the woods, South uh, Wiltshire, Hampshire border. Uh, the water is stored and transmitted in fissures and cracks in the chalk, not in the microporosity. That's another different story altogether. That's where contaminants can lurk. But the actual stuff we're worried about that keeps the river running on a day-by-day -day basis is all to do with water stored and transmitted through uh, fissures and cracks in the chalk. It also has the effect, people have used the, the analogy of the sponge, it's a good one, it's a solid sponge though, but rainfall is evened out so that the river is relatively steady and reliable throughout the year. I use the word relatively. Most of these chalk streams and lots of limestone streams as well are not flashy catchments. The hydrograph, that's the plot of water over time. So it doesn't go like that. It sort of goes rather more muted like that. But you've seen quite a, a few of these uh, already. Uh, without out agriculture and sewage discharges, we heard a bit about that yesterday, water is filtered. So it's a really relatively pure groundwater source. Where I used to live in Kent, I mean, all that often it needed, the water coming out of there was probably just needed a light chlorination treatment. You know, in a sense, lots of the filtering was done to you, but not the solutes, whatever's coming through from elsewhere is another story. And then for various reasons, the hydrochemistry of the waters can favour water meadow operation. Okay, a little bit more science. Uh, here you can see my allusion to temperatures here. This was one of our water meadows at Harlem quite a long time ago now. The air temperature was just over four degrees Celsius. Uh, dry, frosted soil was three. We had a, a frost overnight. It had just reached that point. And yet the water in the carrier, the water on the meadow and the wet soil had all reached 7.8. And if you remember, my magic figure is around five and a half to make at least some of the grasses in the sward grow. So you can fool Mother Nature, if you like, into the idea that uh, it's spring when it isn't. And uh, yes, right, the oxygen uh, saturation remains high. Roger and I are sad enough to have been around oxygen probes, uh, all sorts of water meadows all over the area and beyond. Um, and we are convinced that as long as the water moves, the percentage of oxygen saturation is very impressive. So I don't think we'll tell you that it deprives the river of, of oxygen or anything like that. It doesn't. It's an oxygenation system. Particularly the physical chemistry tells us that when the temperatures of the air is cool then uh, and the water is cool, then more gases are dissolved in it as well. The other thing, of course, to think about is temperature as well. Uh, the temperature is not affected in the irrigation waters returned to the river as well, not adversely affected as well. And that's a fear that I know members of the fishing community have had about floating water meadows. It don't work like that. And again, Roger and I are sad enough to have done thousands of these black motions because it's easy to put a probe in a river and it, it works okay. Just a little historic note here. This is the famous H.H. Lamb. I met him once. I was working at the Climatic Research Unit at UEA. And he was a distinguished climatologist of old and he reconstructed central England temperatures going back a thousand years or so and you have the medieval warm period but when you're coming into the period I'm interested in which is after about 1600 it's the so-called little ice age so although they didn't sort of get up in the morning and put a large coat on and say oh it's been little ice age they they will have realized through practice that uh, this was obviously something of utility to them and of course ever since then the temperatures of course have, have risen after that and are continuing to rise as we've heard about last year being the worst on record I think but but for England anyway.
But here's one of my one of my favourites. Now I know there are many ladies and gentlemen of, of letters here and scholars of the English language, so you will excuse my Tudor English is actually terrible. But this is one of my one of my favourite quotes written in 1535 by a guy called Fitzherbert, a Times of Good King Henry, and he says, "Another manner of mending of meadows if." There be any running water or land flood that may be set or brought to run over the meadows from the time that they are mown until the beginning of May. It will be much the better, and it shall kill, drown, and drive away the mouldy warts. What's a mouldy wolf? Anybody? <laughs> 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 well, it's old scolding something, isn't it? Yeah, mouldy wolves. And fill up the low places with lands. I think that means soil. And make the ground even and good to mow. Try telling a modern farmer that, but never mind. That's what he thought. All manner of waters be good, so that they stand not still upon the ground but especially the water that cometh out of a town from every man's midding or dunghill is best and will make the meadows most rankest. So throw your English for a little out of the window. Shit works, you know, this sort of thing. Um, but anyway, I, I, I love that for all sorts of reasons. Um, one is that intuitively, before the scientific revolution, they've understood how a water meadow might just work. You keep it moving, you can use lots of different waters. He doesn't specifically mention warming, but he does, of course, uh, talk about the nutrient uh, aspect of it as well. And the other thing is, that date's quite critical, so I've been doing some research uh, on the history of a parish just down the road from where I live in Salisbury, like in Bradford. And I, I pretty well established that that's 100 years before the water meadows are going in in Britford. And that seems to gel with the rest of the Lower Avon Valley. We do call it the Wiltshire Avon here. And uh, also the Wiley Valley. And I, I believe the Nadder as well, where uh, I call my water meadows, the Harlem Water Meadows. Um, here's another one for you. Again, I understand that uh, Ted Hughes was influenced by Thomas Hardy. Is that right, Mark? Yes, influenced by both some cheerful fellows, yes. And, and <laughs> the native, uh, he's up on uh, Egdon Heath, it's a fictitious Dorset Heath. And he sees it obviously as an abandoned place, but he also appreciates the human interval habitat and all the rest of it. And he knows about the flint tools that apparently the the uh, uh, the hero Clem Yobright finds about this as well. And I, I'm, I'm thankful to Joe Betty, actually, if you know Joe, he's the historian of the region of Wessex, uh, based at Bristol University. And he says, how could this be otherwise in the days of square fields, plashed hedges and meadows watered on a plan so rectangular that on a fine day they look like silver gridirons? Now, I like this because it's telling me a lot about the managed landscape. We've been talking about that. We're talking about it at breakfast today, about flower meadows in Yorkshire and corners of fields and things like that. And here you've got Lower Britford in Wiltshire. OK, you can't see the ones going the other way. Maybe you can, but there's your gridiron pattern. And he's Hardy's really seeing them as part of an ordered landscape because, you know, he, he understands about square fields. He would have known about things like parliamentary enclosure in his century and things like that. So they're all seen as part of this kind of ordering of the landscape as well. And I, I kind of like that. Here we are, Britford in Wiltshire. That's another truly wet bed. But the only time I ever really digressed with Joe Betty's view of water meadows was he said they're not very photogenic. I think they're some of the most beautiful things you can ever point a camera at. I mean, look at that plush grass growth, uh, green water coming down. You see the end of the bedwork there? It's a tail drain at the bottom. And that, for anyways, is the late Peter Martin. He was on the Heroes. It's a farmer of keeping the water meadows alive. And there he is working as a drowner, a drowner being what I could put on my passports, the person who irrigates the meadows. And he's plugging a spillage there with a prong and he's putting a, putting a turf in there as well. That's from Roger's PhD, and that's aerial photograph from 1974. And again, if we want to introduce the idea of integrated water management, here is the Avon navigation. Interesting in itself is that in the 1670s, it was there to link 
Salisbury to the Sea at Christchurch. By 1720, they'd gone bust way before the Great uh, Canal Age, which starts, well, 60 or so years later. But nonetheless, it's still used to water all these meadows, and they all have particular names to them. And the tail drain, quite a complicated system, but it's, it's nationally important as a triple SI. Um, this is our water meadows at Harnham. And we're thinking of the theme again of integration. There's a sketch by John Constable up there of the mill on the north side. And there was an industrial building there, a mill on the south side. But the significance of this, the River Nadder has come down here from Wilton. It's been joined uh, at Wilton by the Wiley. And it's, there's a big alluvial island here in Old Money. That's about 100 acres, 40 hectares, which I think at some point after about 1630 was severely engineered in the sorts of ways we've been described. They remove the turf, they remove the alluvium, they break the gravels up underneath to encourage drainage, and they put it all back, graded with the bedworks, getting the gradients right, probably by trial and error and so on. And the heights of the river would have been controlled by impoundments at the two mills, the grain mill here at Fisherton and the industrial mill here at Harlem or West Harlem. It's a little diagram for you, there you are, of the uh, of how the system works as well. And I always get this wrong, but uh, you've got carriers on light blue and uh, dark blue is taking them off the drains back to the river as well. Very complicated. Also, you may spot multiple ownership names, sometimes of people who, who would have owned them or rented them at some time in the past, possibly tenant farmers, and also descriptions about how large they were uh, in acres and so on. This is Lower Woodford, uh, just north of Salisbury. That's Cathy there. Uh, needless to say, what she's saying about the uh, structures is probably about, a, I don't know, a D minus or something like that. And it explains one of the problems we do have with the infrastructure is the cost. Oh, in this case, it would be carpentry and all the rest of it to maintaining these historic systems. That is actually Joe Betty over there, the historian. He was impressed when he came to Wiltshire because we've got wider floodplains and we do more with it than Dorset, where he'd been working <laughs> and so on. Um, and in-channel infrastructures uh, we need to think about as well. I just tried to list things here because I think Mark, in early discussions with him, wanted me to talk about some of these things as well. Water meadows, uh, mills, watercress beds, canals, eel traps are controlled by hatches. They open vertically. I'll show you pictures in a minute. Hatch, up, down, a bit like a guillotine. Um, weirs, fixed channels, overtopped by water. The water goes over the top. That distinction is very important for weed drowners. Uh, mill leads, tails, screens, spillways, etc. You'll probably know intuitively if you don't actually know these terms about how an old-fashioned water mill works. It's got its bits to it, and it's closely, obviously, again related in our part of the world to water meadow operation as well. And then, of course, the modern equivalents: radial gates, fish pass weirs as well. So uh, you put these in, obviously, where you maintain an impoundment on the river so that migratory fish and eels and things can get past as well. Uh, and the modern trend, I say regretfully, is to reduce in-channel obstructions. I know per Jeremy Persglove uh, famously used to criticise the engineering ethos of taking out uh, all the structures to get rid of the water quickly to the sea. I tend to agree with him there. Um, also, these were you know, relatively evolved, stable systems, certainly up to about 1900. Then things began to go awry with modern agriculture and with industrialisation and things like that. Um, here's just a few structures for you. I cheated. That's nowhere near us. That's a, a, a weir somewhere in Hertfordshire, but the water goes over the top. This is our hatch pool, which is, a, is in my friend's uh, sort of train set. That's like a junction box with some points. And you've got uh, a carrier going off down there and a carrier going off down there. We restored that. We got some money from the EA, actually, to help us restore. That was nice. And the hatches simply go up and drop. And the, the reason I think uh, why it's important is water going over a weir 
will drop its sediment before the weir, or a lot of it, equations that tell us about this, the Stokes law and stuff like that. But uh, if you actually lift a, a hatch, it scours underneath and you actually get a marvellous return flow. In fact, I've shown kids around and I say, well, if the river's down there where it drains to and the carrier's up there, why is the, the water going that way? And you open it right enough, you actually can see the water going the wrong way in a great big turbulent flow like that. And I try and tell them my magic, but they, they don't. Um, so that's our fish pass we're at uh, Salisbury as well. This is a rear view of Roger, just to show how the grass can grow. And there's some production plots that we, we did there, productivity plots we did there on a weekly basis. And you can see the real uh, difference involved there. The year-round operation of water meadows, again, is quite interesting. If you start in January, you can graze your ewes and lambs on the early grass. And then we come down to here to when you can shut the meadows off and take hay crops off and then you can repair them later on. Obviously, conservation interests are a mixed blessing for us running water meadows, bowls, but we have to work with them because the species are protected, the habitats are protected, and of course, we're honoured to have them as well. There's all sorts of things there. Uh, there's some policy considerations as well, but I want to pull out of this is the modern environmental land management schemes or ELMS that's recognising the management of historic water meadows through irrigation. And here's some of the benefits uh, of water meadows themselves that we've established. The impacts are important, are uh, managed under agri-environmental schemes. That's been going on for some time. Mitigate local flooding. We don't like the flooding like that, but we say, look, we're doing a job for you. It's not in your house if it's on the meadow. Valley bottom water meadows retain the flood water itself. Oxygenation is high in mobile waters. No known adverse impacts on temperature of rivers. Phosphorus mobility is reduced by about one third. That's a key one. We heard a lot about phosphorus yesterday. Across the meadows, soils decline in plant available phosphorus. That's part of the proof. The nitrogen story is complicated. Uh, there's another PhD in that. I won't go on about that. Range of habitats are created. And of course, the interest in meadow irrigation is gradually growing. I'm leading a, part, a party of uh, local farmers to have a look at some meadows uh, in the middle of next month as well. Here's Kathy's idea of the inputs and the outputs of them. The modern time, you've got labour and water and things going in, but you've got outcome, you've got breeding birds, you've got recreation, you've got education, you've got all sorts of things from them as well. So they're quite complicated. And I say, almost on time, I hope, Mark, uh, thank you for Hard and Water Meadows Trust, just to say that no mouldy warts were harmed during the making. Oh, <laughs> and just to show I'm not completely idle, if you, if you are still having problems sleeping, uh, there's some publication. <laughs> as well. right, I'll put it back here. There we go. Thank you. I have to say, because I'm a complete devotee of Hoskins, I could have had him talk all day. So, Hayden, I'm really sorry that we had to rush you, but that was fantastic. Thank you so much. So now we're going on to Mike Foley, who is part of the Cam Valley Partnership, which the Cam Valley Forum, which all of you know about incredibly well. I'm assured that Mike was the leader of citizen science for looking at water pollution and water quality issues. And I know who's involved with the eradication of floating pennywort from the CAM. So, Mike, we're looking forward to your talk. Thank you, Fiona. Good morning, everybody. Well, I've done water quality monitoring now for a few years in Camp Valley Forum. Um, somebody just now said perhaps that Stephen Tompkins, our chair, is working me too hard. But I can assure everybody that it's all self-inflicted. If you get into this, you cannot stop. You have to go delve deeper and deeper. And also in Camp Valley Forum, we have an expert soil scientist, Bob Evans, who has now convinced us that summer soil moisture deficits are getting so high 
that they are impacting on the ability of our aquifers to fill during the winter. And of course, this has implications because of the over abstraction. I call it over abstraction because, again, I think we've been convinced by the environmental agency that it isn't just um, a fair level of abstraction, it is actually over abstraction, which is just inflicting so much damage on the entire cam catchment. So, this is our cam catchment, which is also called the cam, the upper cam, which we call the Essex cam. And then we have the Granter, which is also called the cam. Then, of course, through Cambridge, you have the cam. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we try to keep to the Re and Granter as separate from the cam. Fairly long rivers, but I think the Re is longer than um, Essex cam. So, <laughs> I'm looking at a few barriers. When Stephen started looking at uh, data, um, he didn't have access, would you believe, to internet digitalized data from the Environment Agency. He had pieces of paper from which he had to take 15-minute readings, transcribe them, make up his own spreadsheets. Now, since I joined, we've got all sorts of things. We've had seven years of this sort of data. And without this, I could not have actually been enthused to do any work. We have flows. And you can manipulate it. You can look at it in the last week and look at it over since, say, 1949. And it can be put into table form. So you can do all sorts of Excel work on it. And in the last few days, they've excelled themselves now by bringing in rainfall back at least 20 years. So now you can just manipulate rainfall as, as you like. We don't have access to the Catanic Gardens rainfall for some reason. So it's good to have this. Now, I've helped in trying to get rid of Floating Pennywort, which is a, a non-native from the CAM, it nearly covered the entire Grantchester Meadows CAM uh, in 1917. Uh, the canoes actually in the pubs just sort of parted it a little bit. Um, the canoes couldn't do their races because they couldn't go side by side. We managed to eradicate it. And the point of this is it's affected by phosphate. Its leaf area is tripled by high phosphate. And in Jonathan Newman's work in Glasshouse, the, his highest phosphate level in the glass house was just about where our phosphate starts in the summer. And it was a straight line. So I think we're, we're pleased to see it go. You can, you can see the, the obvious effects on biodiversity, oxygen, etc. And we have pollution. Luckily, we don't see too much of this, but it does occur. And poor old Vickers Brook is just so poor in invertebrates. So I'm not surprised why. We, think we get sewage pipe problems. We get these... Um, shrinkage and, and, and expansion and old pipes, many decades of them. And this is into the Bourne Brook. I found this just by accident because I was sort of trespassing. Otherwise, the farmer wouldn't have been on that field until it dried up. He was really wet. He wouldn't have been. Nobody would have seen it. And it was quite substantial going into the, into the brook. And we have sewage overspills. Um, these are legal. These are allowed by the Environment Agency. This is Hazeling Field, those two big circle. The big ellipse has got two storm tanks in. When they overflow, it goes into the river. It mixes with the treated effluent. And luckily, in this particular case, we had a 53 times dilution of the entire effluent. And so what was going into the river was, was heavily diluted. If you get flash floods in the summer, then you could have another story. Turbidity. People haven't really talked too much about turbidity in the cam, but this is the re on the right, and you've got the Essex cam with the ground to the further up coming down. That was clear, the turbid re uh, not mixing well at that point. Very obvious. And um, this is the Barrington, not good at all. 
we do believe the signal crayfish are involved in this. I mean, that there hasn't been a proper survey now for 11 years, and how to survey it um, diligently, I think, is, is needs to be discussed. Um, eDNA, for instance, may not work all the time, but I think we should to try to understand where signal crayfish fit into this. I did stability measurements using university in, all the way up from Gildan Morden down to this is beyond main Cambridge. This is an almost fence and very high turbidity. A Barrington, 52 centimetres. Well, no, no plants up on the riverbed would ever see the light. And this is through the summer months. And I can say that this was in a year where we didn't have runoff coming in the summer from, from fields, from wherever, because we didn't have any rain. So this is purely an effect of, and this is where I've left it for somebody else to try to pick up. Crayfish might be part of it, but we've also got dredged riverbed, and we've got a clay marl, and that seems to lift off so easily. That could explain why we've got high levels of a Gildan Morden, but the crayfish come into it. Knowledge. When I started, I was floundering around saying, now what sort of machine do I use? How do I use it? Which is the best one? Pros and cons. And it would be, this is from the Rivers Trust and Kappa. It would be so good if they could review these more fully and keep it up to date, such as the Woodbridge E. coli uh, machine, recanting, and let it be known to everybody. We've got all these river groups who, who keep coming to me to say, well, so what should I use? And uh, where should I do it? I've had people from the Mersey saying, and Lincolnshire uh, saying, how do we do bacterial counts as a citizen science? And I think all this could be put onto the Rivers Trust uh, website. Eutrophication, main nutrients are nitrate and phosphate, soluble reactive phosphate. And this is below a high phosphate discharging sewage treatment works. This is pretty bad. This is extreme. But it's algae. It's, is it cladophora? It's filamentous algae in it. If you think that was just an extreme, this is Byron's pool, turbid on the camp at this point, and you can just get this filamentous algae out wherever you, you put a, a rake in. So when it comes to biodiversity, we have lost a lot of plants over time. We've lost over a third of our, our plants. And it is striking, well, it's perhaps not surprising, but not unsurprising that those that um, have suffered are those that can't cope with the higher nutrient levels, especially phosphate. So nitrate, nitrate is in the aquifer. Nitrate just comes down the river. Nothing we can do about it. So we've got very high levels of nitrate. This is at Cofen in Cambridge. It's going to be here for decades. It's, it's increasing, I think. Phosphate has been going down over the years. We've had a detergent reductions in phosphate or bands. Um, we've had, in the last recent years, we've had some of the sewage treatment works having phosphorus strippers put in. So there is a, a, a downward trend, not fast enough, I think. And you can see in, in the summers, the, the levels go up. And I'm not showing you our data because there's too much of it, but we have shown the phosphate over, what, 49 sites or so. And in the summer, you can see how all the phosphates are elevated in low flows. So the low flows come into it. How do you, if we get a figure, a value of phosphate, how do we relate it to the EA, poor, moderate, good or high categories? And this is what we've had to use. We've got our own little table here for the Cambridge area based on the alkalinity and the altitude. And it's not so bad as you think. And you can't find, I can't find anywhere a nationally for uh, 
these standards. Because now the water framework directive says you have to do it side by side, or at least reach by reach. And confusion in phosphate and phosphorus. Look at the SRP. There are, uh, the, this is from the EA. There are two SRPs. You think that phosphorus and phosphate should be differentiated because one is three times the amount than the other. It's very complicated. And I don't want to say too much, choose my words here. There are at least two water companies who have made serious errors in publishing their phosphate stroke phosphorus. They told me I was confused. They told me I was wrong. It took me three or four months to show that they were wrong. There's also problems in some of the Environment Agency reports where they've actually put phosphate in where they mean phosphorus. It is a minefield. Somebody has to review this. I think the Water Trust would be a great place to actually tell us where we see the data, what it means, and how we put it all together. And when it comes to the inputs, yes, we hear about the River Y, we hear about the millions of chickens and all that. We're the other way in the camp catchment. We have far fewer animals. Our runoff, okay, well, it's not all soluble reactive phosphate, is it? It's all bound up in soils. It's, it's collecting there in the riverbed for to come back again in years to come. But this shows, I think, convincingly that we've got problems with sewage treatment works, with discharge and phosphate. And over the camp catchments, we've got maybe 35. Two of those are in non-chalk streams. The re have got 11. Three of those have had pea strippers put in. Uh, we need more pea strippers, and, and there's going to be another uh, two, I think, put in in the next year and a half. But they're scattered all over. And um, this shows some of our work. This is on the Essex camp, the other camp. Newport in the summer becomes the head of the river. The, that is the camp in the summer. And you, it shows that Sparrow SN is just a few kilometres down. But still at a level of phosphate, which should be decried nationally. I mean, it's just not right. Then we have um, augmentation. And we also have a, a chalk stream that's still flowing back in August. And the, the levels go down. Then we come to Great Chester, where it's high input again. And then we come to levels which carry on down the river, which to me are far too high. And if you look at the sewage treatment work that I monitored, you can see the difference between those with pea strippers, the discharge of phosphate, reported as phosphorus, an important distinction. The phosphate is so much lower than, than those which are not uh, yet got a pea stripper. So I mentioned the head of the river. That becomes the head of the river if the augmentation by the EA um, goes wrong, and it was going wrong regularly last summer. Head of the river, high, high phosphate. Newport, head of the river, high phosphate. Barrington, uh, not head of the river, but it's so, it so heavily augments the river, it is almost like the head of the river. And we got the Bourne on the Bourne Brook, non-chalk. That becomes the head of the river in summer. And so, so it goes on. So the next thing I want to talk about is the health barrier. I noticed, Mark, that 13% of people who contributed yesterday said they're swimmers. One in That's quite a lot. Uh, if there's anybody here who swam yesterday who aren't here today because they're not. <laughs> <laughs> we look at indicators, E. coli and intestinal entricocci. And we do it at um, a fair number of points along the river. I'm just looking at some core points here. And zero and the arrow is Hastingfield sewage treatment works. 
counts above, well, they're not low, but we've got Foxton sewage treatment works just up the river anyway. But then we get this incredibly high surge in numbers just below, 230 metres below the sewage treatment works. And it tails off. And, and the tailing off, the attenuation is, but I think these figures are low, but when you get sufficient numbers, you can do an equation on them, 95 percentile, which means that uh, what looks like to be a fairly low geometric mean suddenly turns into a fail. It goes down a standard. So we tried it. Well, we've only done seven samples, I'm afraid, at Sheep's Green, which used to be the Cambridge official swimming site. From the seven samples, looking at standard errors and everything else you have to put into the equation, it actually fails. Um, even though you look at the geometric mean, you think, well, that's not so bad. And, and it's important to know the difference between the mean and the EA 95 percentile output. So this is how it was in the heyday. And this is part of a proposal towards designation of a bathing water. We did some preliminary work two years ago, and um, the vast majority of the communities in Cambridge supported the idea. Everybody wants us to have a cleaner river. There are some people who are worried we might get too many people attracted from outside to this. <laughs> but nevertheless, people do swim there. We want to look after those people. And we finished our work now, but because Anglian Water have seen how we've implicated Hazingfield sewage treatment works, they have come in since last September. They are doing weekly counts at 15 or so of the, the sites that we suggested to them. And that, so they're doing weekly counts, E. coli, entrycocky, building up a database. And if they show that Hazingfield is, is heavily implicated, which I think they will, we don't know because they haven't finished then you will then have to seriously consider putting some treatment in by disinfectant into the works there, which would also include storm overfill. overfill overspill. Um, they would have to actually treat that as well. But we don't get too many of them. Most of the time, we're getting this treated effluent causing these problems, not the, the storm overfills. Of course, they're going to be exacerbated. So um, we need the designation, I think, so that the EA will come in, they will do the statutory testing from May to September, 20 samples. That will then inform WINER, which is the Water Industry National Environment Programme. And then that will lead on to some sort of agreement with Anglian Water. It'll go to Offwatch, and Offwatch should say, yes, OK, go ahead and do the disinfection. And then we're going to get, hopefully, fewer organisms. Not It's E. coli, it's OK. It's the viruses and everything else. That the company is which is the problem so we should get a cleaner river for those swimmers and those 13 percent here will feel happier and augmentation as rob said yesterday 20 percent of the abstracted water is augmented with augmentation water because there's just not enough in the aquifers to keep the rivers flowing otherwise and and they will just dry up so badly without the augmentation and so of course we have all these things combining Turbidity plus phosphate plus, you know, it's it's something we have to address and, and make better. And the flows, did I put flows in there? Yes. Yeah. I could perhaps put zero flow. That was brilliant and shocking all at once. Thank you very much for all that you've done and are doing. So our final speaker in this session is Trevor Bishop from Water Resources Southeast, who is looking, as his job implies, at the wider regional perspective on water resources. So, 
Hello. And here. Thank you. Fiona, and a very good morning to everyone here. Really pleased to be here. And I think this event is tremendous. The fusion of art, literature, poetry, uh, and multimedia is tremendous. I don't have any cultural contributions to today's sessions. So I thought I might just start with this very simple bit of prose. So I will read this out because I think it's quite important. This, uh, this is a, a, an assessment of the groundwater situation, the reduction in the level of the groundwater water table, which in a serious way is not in fact due exclusively, is a relatively short duration, which is generally compensated by surface rainfall, but an enormous increase in water consumption, which has taken place in recent years. The fact that the increased urbanisation of land, waterproofing the roads and general installation of stormwater and sewage systems have to deprive the underground supplies of part of the replenishment they only enjoy. I think most of us would probably recognise many of those problems as what we're facing today and what we need to address in the future. What I think is slightly polarising is that this wasn't written at some point in the recent past in the 20s. It was written towards the end of the 1920s. And it begs the question, how in a sophisticated country, a strong regulatory, you know, democratic process, a country which is overall very rich in so many ways, how we still find out there facing these very same problems almost a hundred years later. So you probably, my only contribution to culture is that probably makes you feel a bit like Edward, Edward Munch scream painting, <laughs> you know, how can we still be here and what do we do about it? So I was asked to talk about some of the barriers and the work that we do, trying to understand what those barriers are, and even more importantly, how we can get around them, how we can go underneath them, how we can go over them, how we can go through them. But the work we do isn't about lobbying. The work we do is working within the system to use the system to advantage to get to where we need to be. And sometimes where it's possible to do so, to actually change the system so it works better in the future. But this is a system that we need to do. Now, many of you in this community, you know, were, you might despair at the system and you find it very frustrating. What's the point in all these consultations, et cetera, et cetera. And I completely sympathise. But with the other side of that equation, and actually I think there's a fusion between what we're trying to do and what you want to see, and if I were to romanticise what we try to do, it's about trying to turn your dreams into reality. But it won't happen overnight. It's a long game, sometimes decades, many decades. And that's what I'd like to talk about a little bit this morning, if I may, because as the old saying goes, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. So persevering with the work that you do in lobbying, in citizen science, in trying to engender those changes within regulators of government is important. But I hope you will also see that what we're trying to do, working in parallel with yourself, to try to provide the evidence to go through the economics, legislation, <laughs> to bring about the investment and the changes needed, hopefully is equally important and the two complement themselves. So when it comes to barriers, Water Resources Southeast, our role is to bring together the very best available evidence and to assess it in an open and transparent way so that as many people as possible can buy into that. So we want water companies to buy into it, we want regulators, we want more communities to buy into it and the wider public. That means the degree of transparency 
capitalism. It means a degree of compromise and violence. But what it does mean, it feeds into a statutory process with clear legislative and statutory support, which will enable the investment, which ultimately will we need. I guess the philosophy I've chosen over the last three years with regard to how I approach this, actually what I've done throughout my career is start with a philosophy and you may disagree with it. But no one I meet is either stupid or bad. Some people have tested that philosophy to the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, it's true. I'm going to draw where you think I sit on that particular section. <laughs> um, I don't quite meet the stupid criteria, but we will, we will tell me at the end. But I think it's really important when people do things that look bad or they look stupid, it's really important to understand why they're doing it. It's only when you understand why can you start to have a really candid, useful conversation about how you can move this forward. And that can take a long time and it can take a lot of perseverance. It can take a lot of, you know, hand against the face type conversations. But we have to understand the different agents within this and why they do what they do and why they don't do the things maybe we think that they should do. So a little bit more about Water Resources Southeast, really just for, for context. So Water Resources Southeast is an alliance for six water companies that supply water across the southeast of England. My one big caveat to today's conversation is we have nothing, we don't do any planning associated with wastewater. Actually, I wish we did because the challenge there is phenomenal. And I think we're seeing or we're reaping the disbenefit of definitely investment due to a lack of planning and legislation to drive things forward. But that's not what we do. So we purely look at the low flows, the groundwater security supply, etc. But it's not just water companies. So on our board, we've got regulators, we've got government, we've got ENGOs, we've got agriculture, we've got the energy sector all coming together. Probably for the first time I've seen in my 30 odd years career coming together and trying to understand those different priorities and how we move things forward. I'll just go back because I think this map here is quite important. The water supply areas across the southeast of England. So each colour represents the supply area by different companies. I sometimes uh, challenge my students to design a more dysfunctional administrative <laughs> development <laughs> water in the southeast of England. So Southern Water, bless them, for example, have six supply zones, none of them contiguous, apart from a very small <laughs> across the Isle of Wight, uh, which is a tiddler. You know, and the other companies, you can also see, you know, very few of them are contiguous in nature. In fact, I think that the water has a supply area that's even off that map, even at the top of East Anglia, etc. So, you know, regional planning is important because we plan as if none of those boundaries, none of those companies exist as in isolation. So we plan for the region as a whole, but not just the region. We also plan with energy, agriculture, government regulators, and other groups across the whole of England with links into Wales. So we can think and assess whether there are transfers to move water around the country that has positives and negatives, whether there's policies that we can implement in some bits of the geography of England, which would help others, et cetera, et cetera, and effectively move water from area where there is some legitimate surplus to where there is deficits to rebalance that and to enable environmental outcomes that we all want. So that's really what we're trying to do is turn those dreams into reality. You will, I'm sure, ask yourself time and again, why can't water companies just simply turn off this dreadful abstraction? It's patently obvious the damage that it's causing. It's patently obvious that people don't support it. 
you know, why don't they do that? So I think if I just talk through some of the reasons which have really constrained these barriers, I guess, that we're here to talk about today. I guess the first one I want to talk about, and I've got four overall, is security of supply. The photo on the right-hand side is a sort of a quintessential nature of drought in England. So that was taken in April 2012, towards the end of a very severe drought. The picture on the left could equally have been taken a week before or a week after. Because the southeast of England is supplied by about 66% from groundwater, the majority of it chalk, actually it takes a very, very long lifetime from when we get cycles of wet to dry wet to come through the system. So when we had that deluge in London and we had floods on the street from April onwards in 2012, there was 20 million people on host pipe restrictions at that time. And it took four or five months before there was enough confidence to change it. The environmental stress in 2012 was absolutely phenomenal. And I was involved in a role which was trying to very sadly have to relocate, you know, iconic fish populations to try to give them some chance of making it through this situation because the environment had become so degraded that a drought on top of that degraded environment had meant that we were literally facing the potential <coughs> some species and some elements to almost become extinct within certain geographies and reintroduction was very difficult. But what this also did was polarise the government how important security of supply is. So if we turned on attractions from the chalk tomorrow, within about a week, London would go dry of water. And when we ran through the scenarios in 2012 with government, and we were looking at London being without water with the Olympics in 2012, within about four to six months and going on to rotor cuts and standpipes, the reality of that for the economy, for society, for public health and for the environment were absolutely enormous. And it helped to shift and encourage some very positive legislation in the 2012 Water Act, which put a resilience duty to further the resilience objective on Ockwatt, which was absolutely key to help them think about long-term security of supply, but also sustainability as well. So there's no magic answer about just turning on abstractions. We have to find a way to understand how we can rebalance supply and demand so that people and the economy will also have the water they need as well as the environment. And that won't happen overnight. The next one is science. I come from a science background, but I've probably forgotten more than I ever knew. Chalk is a, a very, very different, difficult scientific area in terms of what are sustainable supplies. Clearly, not abstracting any water is brilliant, and you know that would be largely uh, sustainable. But the chalk has tremendous heterogeneity. It has dual porosity, which is quite unusual for any groundwater aquifer source. So if I was on a chalk aquifer and I drilled a borehole here and I started pumping away, I might have a river over where Fiona is, which is not impacted, but I might have a river two kilometres that way, which yeah. won't be impacted. So there's no deterministic or very little empirical evidence to understand the relationship between abstraction and effects on the environment. I hesitate to use this analogy, but it's the only one I can think of. It's a bit like many forms of cancer. You can't make a deterministic link between eating toast, which has been burnt, and you know becoming more susceptible to cancer. What you can show is that there's a very strong relationship between the two, which in itself is competitive evidence. And that's the same with groundwater. It's very difficult to have that deterministic link. And that, the lack of that deterministic link has given those who don't want to reduce abstraction 
tremendous agent not to do so. That's why a lot more work in this area has been done over the last couple of years, which I'll talk about the results on in a moment. Legislation, we have some brilliant environmental legislation in this world. I, I work internationally on some of the legislative angles around uh, environment and climate change, particularly. I love this quote from the New Statesman, and it's a few years ago now. And the Magna Carta was good for humans, but it was uh, even better for fish. So, you know, it's fascinating how the Magna Carta sort of polarised the fish barriers, etc., and how they needed to be written. Mr. Brood over there is a hero of mine. He introduced the first bit of environmental legislation in Parliament in, uh, in 1510. He was duly put in the dungeons of Lidford Castle, which is very close to where I live in Devon. Uh, his efforts uh, eventually released, and that was the first bit of environmental legislation. So I said we've got brilliant legislation. So why is it such a problem? Why have we got, you know, so many issues with mover extraction, let alone talking about water quality size? And it really comes down to the enforceability of that legislation and the system of regulation that underpins its implementation. And that's where much of our time as Water Resources Southeast has been spent, working with regulators and politicians to understand the trade-off and difficulties they have within this process. The last bit I should say is, of course, economics. Economics has been the key to decision-making in water for many decades. We're shifting away from that now, and that's quite important. Uh, I sat next to a very senior politician for a, a dinner one boozy night. I won't, I won't do name dropping, but quite a senior person. Um, we talked about economics and they said towards the end of the conversation that economists are more dangerous than terrorists. Now, I'm not sure I necessarily agree. Applying pure economics to the environment leads to many disingenuous answers and a lack of progress. And I think moving away from the use of pure economics is fundamental to overcoming some of the barriers that we face. So in the last five minutes, I think, what I'll do is just cover some of the outputs from the work that we do and where we'll go next. So these are meant to be pseudo-glasses or pseudo-tumblers, depending on, on, on your poison, of uh, what is driving the gap between supply and demand in the future. What are the barriers that we need to un undercome and invest to deal with? So if I look at the 2050 glass there, you can see roughly half of that is driven by the work we have done with the Environment Agency and with many of you in this community, not least Wild Fish, but also Chalk Spring First, the Rivers Trust and other ENGOs across the southeast of England and nationally with some international input as well to understand how we need to rebalance the amount of water which is taken from traditional chalk and other groundwater and occasionally subsurface water sources. 1,185 megalitres a day. Each megalitre supplies about 6,000 people. So I'll let you do the maths, but we're talking about an absolutely fundamental shift in the way that we work with the environment to access water resources and the way that we treat water as a natural resource in the future. The other parts of that, some of it's driven by growth, that's economic growth, the growth in population, which you're familiar with. Another bit is a policy by government to shift the greater drought resilience for climate change. The relatively small blue bit is labelled as climate change. That's very disingenuous. Climate change is pervasive across all those elements. That just represents the effect of climate change on the yield of current sources, reservoirs and groundwater, etc. So it probably doesn't reflect really the climate change in total. This map shows the net reduction in abstraction that this plan is saying to government regulators and water companies they will need. 
The very light areas at the bottom there are catchments where the reduction needs to be reduced by 80 to 100%. So effectively in those catchments, they turn off substantially those abstractions and find different ways to meet that supply and demand balance. And you can see a gradation or there down to uh, no reduction or 10%. That's pretty much because those catchments don't have any abstractions, so it's a relatively easy calculation. But hopefully you can see the spread there is we're talking an average of at least 50, if not 60 percent of a reduction in groundwater for some really key iconic chalk abstractions across the southeast of England. So a really polarizing fact. You may have different views, whether that's enough, et cetera. And certainly there's a very deep debate on how fast we implement, which we can come on to maybe another part. <laughs> So how are we going to rebalance supply and demand? So the butcher's bill, this comes in at about 15 billion pounds. That's billion. And as I said, it means a shift in the way that we work with water as a natural resource and the way that we value the environment. First and foremost, the plan says we have to reduce the amount of water that we use and waste. So it's adopting the government's or regulators' policy of reducing leakage, water companies reducing leakage by 2050, and reducing per capita consumption down from about 145 for all of us today, down to about 110 by 2050. It's a slow journey and a big, hard journey. But then we also need to start implementing infrastructure as well. And, and this is bad news in terms of everything also has an environmental impact. And we need to understand the trade-off between those. So water recycling is really important about whether it's supported or not. That's creating semi-closed loop systems. It's not taking wastewater from the sewage plant, treating it and putting it straight back into the distribution system. All of them treated to a higher standard, put it back into the natural environment as a buffer and re-abstract it before it gets to the sea. So then it goes round in a loop. Incredibly sustainable, incredibly resilient to some climate change pressures, but some big questions about acceptability. And particularly because of the lack of trust in the sector at the moment, many people have said, we don't trust water companies to treat sewage normally, to treat sewage and then put it back into supply. We really don't trust them. So some big issues there. Also coming through are uh, reservoirs and potentially decelerating plants, et cetera. So that's 2025 to 2035. Our last slide just shows the different types of sort of levels of challenge, how that mix changes. So we're talking about potentially what's that sort of, you know, 14 desalination plants, 10 plus reservoirs over the period, lots of recycling and an awful lot of demand management. The good news for this, this is not just a pie in the sky plan. This plan feeds into the statutory process that goes into what's PR24. It would be very difficult for Ofwat to put a red pen through this plan because it links in for a statutory process through water resource management plans. And that, we hope, is the golden thread that we see this plan turn your dreams into reality. Thank you very much for your time this week. Well, thank you very much. I think that was really helpful. This shows how challenging the bigger picture is, as well as the micro picture that we've already heard so much about. So, Mike, Hayden and Trevor, if you want to come up here again, because I let, we've got a few minutes to question, even if we're slightly late for coffee. So what reactions, thoughts, challenges? Yeah, one at the back. Hello, uh, my name is James Errington. I'm Water Policy Officer at Wild Fish. The question I want to pose is over the last two days, a lot of people have talked about over-abstraction, uh, something I work a lot on. And a lot of my time and attention is focused on water companies, for instance, using kind of local 
case, Cambridge Water are going to delay the majority of the abstraction reductions until 2040. So we're lobbying hard at water companies to change that. Probably a question for Trevor. Is it worth lobbying water companies or should we be looking at the regulators and government at trying to actually change the planning process because water companies have to plan in five-year periods? And is that actually the issue that we have? So James, absolutely, and the system is very definitely imperfect in this respect. So if a water company completes an investigation and they find a source is environmentally unsustainable any time after August this year, it pretty much won't go through to peer review till 2029. And then you won't get any sign of action until the mid-2030s. That's pretty ridiculous if the evidence has been agreed as appropriate. So, yes, we need a system which doesn't have these very big locked-in time steps and can respond much more dynamically. Actually, the opportunities are do, to do that there are what could allow for drawdown funding so that water companies can take action as soon as the available is appropriate to do the investment quickly and to make the change of that license as quickly as possible. And sometimes some licenses can be changed without compromise of security supply because it's within headroom, etc. So we need a much more flexible approach and, and, and you and I have talked about some work to try to make that. Thank you. Mike, do you want to add? Yeah. I think it's all too late. Um, there should have been a lot more uh, going on a few years ago when it comes to reservoirs and planning for reservoirs. I do believe, though, that there was resistance to um, putting reservoirs into the countryside. And this, you know, maybe Cambridge Water just uh, just couldn't cope with that and just thought they could carry on. Got away with it. Well, they got away with it. Um, resi resilience. I thought that all water supplies had to have resilient sources. I thought that was brought in from off what? And yet, when you read some of the water companies' uh, reports and management plans, Cambridge Water, 90, 94% of their water comes from the aquifer. Now, that isn't a resilient water supply at all. Uh, again, they, they've known this for years. So that's why there should have been support for reservoirs years ago. Then we wouldn't have to be waiting for at least 12, maybe 17 years for that. So we do have we do have some hope in that Grafham Water run by Anglian Water will be a supply for Cambridge Water if it all goes well by, by 2030. And sooner, if Cambridge Water get the money, maybe there's, there's so many pipes to build. Yeah. We'll come, I'm sure we'll come back to you. Um, I mean, I'm just wondering, actually, Trevor, you might, might pick this up another moment, but, you know, the five-year, mm. it's such a short period of time, isn't it? So we're locked into these very short periods of, of investment strategy, whereas actually we need a... Perpetuity kind of vision, and you you were talking about long term. How, how do you get out of that five year cycle? Because that you know you could lobby the government on the longer term, off what on the beyond five years, and then the water company on you know who are locked into their five year program. So there is a kind of time frame issue. With the planning, the plan we've done takes us to twenty fifty and then to twenty seventy five. Obviously, with a reduction in confidence, which is out. What it means is we can see the actions that need to be taken now with low regrets to a more sustainable future. It's the funding regime which tends to be very sh relatively short term. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Now, got loads. Can I imagine one more? All right, quickly, and then I'm going to get lots of questions. Yeah. We we are worried that Cambridge Water will have this extra supply from the new reservoirs and it will simply go into supporting new development in Cambridge. And we know there has to be a certain level of development, but we can't allow 
huge increases in development simply because we've promised this extra supply. Cambridge's levels of development may be not sustainable anyway. Now, I've got one here. We've got one here. Let's take three and then I'll go back. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name's Ian Hawkins. I'm an engineer for the electricity distribution company in this region. Uh, who says water and electric don't mix? I think somebody said that today. I'm a, a, a volunteer, a campaigner for the local Chalkstream River Arc, but I think. For Trevor, a, a few questions, really. Is it time for questions. a seasonal time of day tariff for the water industry so that when water resources are at their most stretched, people have to pay more? Surely we shouldn't be allowing people to fill paddling pools at a time when we have no water. And uh, I guess perhaps the other thing is forcing people to do the fixing of the leaks. That has to be linked like with the customer minutes lost, customer interruptions in the electricity industry, whereby if you don't achieve a target, the industry gets fined severely for that. Equally, if they achieve greater than that target, so long as those targets are stretched, they actually are allowed to retain more of their profits. I okay. think those are Brilliant. Thank you. Hold a question. There's one. Yes. Yes. Sound next. Okay, great. Yeah, my name is Sarah Hudson. I'm a writer. I've got a question for Hadrian about water meadows, actually. Presumably, I'm very interested on the impact of the increased phosphorus that the water meadow presumably traps. Can you say a bit more about that, how that affects the water meadow? I'm just going to get another question in. Bill Hicks, Wildfish. You've talked about the planning and the problems with the planning, but two further things. One, how do we force the government or persuade the government to get it paid for? How can we get the price of water up? And secondly, how can we make sure that when there's this lovely plan for recycling a reservoir, it gets done as quickly as possible, rather than as usual, twice the time it's supposed to? Okay, so two kind of economic sequences about price of water, particularly and energy. But let's take water meadows first. Yeah. So, Roger Cussing caught me once saying after a few points. Phosphorus is the new nitrogen, which he replied, of course, he thought you chemistry. Uh, but it was actually a policy comment. And that so much money has been quite rightly spent 30, 40 years, the directives have us on, on, on nitrogen. I always felt that phosphorus had been somewhat rejected. And in a very, very conventional way, it's quite easy to do these spot measurements in soils and on water matters. I know there's all the confusion we've heard about about reporting it. But to answer your question, we looked at this, even our Sammy Jones as a Birmingham, she's an international expert actually on phosphorus, so we took it very much from her. And it seems to us that we got statistically significant differences from the top and bottom of the water meadow system, taking up about 30% of the phosphorus that, that comes in from the river. And, you know, we don't know the sources of that, but we've heard it's obviously both agricultural and storm runoff and, and of course, human. And uh, so that's the good sign. Getting a bit more technical about it, uh, when we looked at filtered and unfiltered samples, it seemed obviously that most of it was going through in the particulate form. The reductions in dissolved phosphorus in the water uh, were not statistically significant. It was just a trend towards it as well. But I can, I think, put my hand up and say a number of studies 
done by us, but don't think anybody else, have actually shown that one of the really good impacts of them is taking some of the phosphorus out of the river. Now, it's like a lot of things. It's like talking about carbon sequestration and all the rest of it. We don't want the imposition of particular management systems to come. So it's all right, you put as much crap in the river as you like, the water matters will take them up. That's not the point. But it's a kind of polishing exercise that you can use, or is, if you like, it's a kind of insurance that's at the back of it is best way I think of it like that. Does that answer your question? That's really, really interesting. Yeah. Now, differential water pricing and is water too cheap? Yeah. And then very quickly. Yeah. So tariffs are on their way. Uh, so Affinity Water has tried to introduce that process now. Other water companies will follow suit. They're worried about it being their poll tax moment. Um, so we will see how fast and slow it goes, but it's started. There is no other way to reduce the demand reduction that they need to do without having tariffs within other options. The economics is still really, really key, obviously. In some ways, we've moved past pure economics, which is good news, but the big potential barrier is affordability. Government, relatively knee-jerk way, have some targets clearly on wastewater and CSOs for all the right reasons which we all support. They will probably drive at least a doubling of water bills when you then factor on top of what needs to happen with low flows, there may be a trade-off between the two which we don't like. So there's some very important issues there. We might see a shift in the level of gearing in companies from debt to equity, which will release some money for investment. But ultimately, there's no money magic monetary and it will be on customers' bills, and that's the time. This is a question for Trevor. So chalk streams are priority habitat eight, according to Natural England. I've been reading, I've sort of recently come to the area, so this might be my ignorance. I've been searching around for AIMS, the uh, abstraction incentive mechanism. Uh, that was supposed to be a part of the price review, I believe, or kind of giving giving water companies added economic incentive to abstract responsibly. Uh, I found reference to it around 2016. And then in the last paperwork that I've seen, I've not seen AIMS. Okay. So where is the incentive for the water companies? We'll come back to that, Trevor. Um, it's a bit through the cracks and the dry ground. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Tim Leach. I'm a CEO of a charity um, in a completely different sector to this. What I'm interested in is whether we are asking the wrong question about extraction. Maybe we should be filling up rivers and aquifers. The other thing is, I'm going to commit heresy within this room, which is I'm going to say... Actually, I think it's not a question about cheap water, okay? I think this is a question about water companies being taken over by private equity firms, which have then indebted them. So it's not just the CEO at Cats. It's not just paying the profits of the dividend. And I have to say, I benefit from the profits of the dividend because they've helped fund my charity. So I understand those markets. So then you look at something like Anglian Water, who's heavily invested in making sure that development happens in this region. Mars, a capped price of water means one of the ways around that is to build more houses. So making water more expensive makes me feel a lot better. 
you know, like wearing, you know, sustainable clothing. However, I don't think it's going to answer questions. I don't think it's going to actually make things better. So we need to get more to in rather than just charging us more. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. Quick yeah. one. Rob Hungum from the Wild Trout Trust. So Adrian, could you tell us more about how the actual water meadows were even mapped or planned when they originally been set out and who funded them? Yeah, and Hadrian, go first. Uh, yes, a long question. I don't know the answer to that. I think one of the problems is I don't think anybody knows the absolute issue to them. Is it lost in time? Well, it's not quite lost in time. You can find things like manorial records, which might talk about it. I mean, the work that Joe Betty unearthed originally in Wiley, I think it was 1635 or 1632 or something. They were clearly going in up there. And uh, with the help of um, a translator of these documents, I found a similar thing at Britain down the road from me. There seems to have been a kind of experimental phase. It was known about. Uh, you know, but the idea when these systems take off is kind of, when the economic conditions are right, it can be seen as part of the so-called agricultural revolution. Uh, certainly occurs in the 17th century, along with all the other things you'll probably know about meadow irrigation, land drains, and things like that. A, a big issue that take off then. It's not until later you actually see plans of them, people like Boswell and so on, who draw out maps. And he's, he's, he's writing this 1780s, 1790s. Um, about it as well. I, I think what tended to happen was the gentlemen would talk one to another about their estates, and I will send my man along. There's a lovely story that Joe unearthed about um, somebody coming down to, uh, from Newcastle to Wessex uh, in connection with wanting to take it back to, uh, to his estate, I think, in the northeast. And uh, the powers of B were, were concerned that the two men uh, couldn't communicate because one obviously was Geordie and the other a West Country. <laughs> <laughs> And they did. So that was interesting. So we, we know quite a bit about the later phases of them. My feeling is there was a lot of sort of earlier experimentation going on of people mucking about. The investment um, came, I think, from the biggest states largely, which is very different from uh, the, the hillside systems I didn't talk about in the West Country. There was much more sort of, you know, family farm type of, type of enterprise. But the drowners seems to have emerged quite quickly as a, a trade uh, who, who helped lay them out. Um, and then operate them and things like that. Another important factor that we've looked at... Adrian, just briefly. Okay, is, of course, the, the land ownership. And our meadows, you saw it, was rather fragmented. It seems to have partly been on strips of medieval march, I imagine, beforehand, and things like that. And I think a lot really depended on those conditions I've set up anyway. I'll shut up now. No, it's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, Mike, please. And uh, respond, if you like, to this kind of fundamental challenge. Well, going back to the price of drinking water... I don't think we'll see a tub, a tub this year from Cambridge Water, quite frankly, even though we did put it in a request that there should be one from the 1st of July. I think um, Cambridge has had over two and a half times its typical March uh, rainfall, and that was a week and a half ago. So that might just save them from having to think about it. But last year, they were, they were asking the community to reduce their water because we had a drought year. So what happened? The supply went up 25%. We were using far more water than uh, we should have been. <laughs> and all those paddling pools and everything else. It doesn't help to just lightly ask people to reduce their water supply. 
first of all, the abstraction incentive, yeah. but anything you want to say about the kind of bigger challenges to... So Engels works fantastically when water companies have choices about which boreholes or reservoirs that they use. When they don't have any choices, because effectively maxed out from their resources, Ames doesn't really have much benefit because they're all equally environmentally damaging and they have no choice. So Ames has tended to sort of take a back seat. It's now all about investing to make sure they've got these lower impact sources, whether that's recycling or reservoir. So it's slightly off the agenda, which is why you won't see it with the catch up afterwards. I, I won't get into ownership and, and, and deep financial elements of, of the sector, but there are definitely, you're absolutely right, some perverse incentives for water companies, not least the fact that the amount of return they get is related to how much infrastructure they own, so the regulatory uh, capital value, etc. So that drives companies to want to build more infrastructure effectively and supply more water, as you say. It's a bit more interesting than that, as I'm sure you appreciate, but, but you're absolutely right, there's perverse incentives in the system. Just adding to what Trevor was saying on AIM, it was reviewed as part of the chalk strategy. It, it, it works with surface water abstraction where you can actually play fine tunes in a, in a sort of immediate way. But on groundwater abstraction, if you stop abstracting or lessen the abstraction, it takes quite a few months and a recharge period to actually make a difference on surface flows. So turning off an abstraction on the 1st of June, for example, won't manifest itself in any significant way in terms of surface flows until the following year. So AIM doesn't really adapt very well for fine-tuning abstraction when it comes to groundwater. Thank you very much for that addition. So it's coffee time. Um, I want to do two things. Um, I want to just say one word and then, then we're going to thank our speakers. I mean, I, this has been an absolutely fascinating session and thank you so much. But I love the way we've woven the historical into the contemporary. And that's the best thing. I think this conference has shown the way we've been art and culture and people and nature, you know, not just looking at it down silos because that's the <clears throat> that gets me frustrated is that we we're locked in a system which is very short-term economics driven and as trevor said you know we're past the days where economics is enough it's sort of necessary but not sufficient and when we're talking about long-term challenges whether for nature or climate or actually you know people and consumption the short-term nature of the regulatory system just doesn't help so i think there's some really big particularly issue about demand management people's propensity to think you know address these issues is, is, a, is a really big one so we're, we're going to the next session now full of challenges um, and i want to thank our three speakers thank you for listening to this owned by everyone podcast one in a series of eight recorded at the conference on the wonder plight and future of chalk streams held in cambridge at the end of march 2023 our conference wouldn't have been possible without generous funding from Pembroke College, Cambridge, the University of Cambridge's School of Arts and Humanities Impact Fund and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. So we want to thank them too. Now, go back to ownedbyeveryone.org and swim in the pool of water resources of all kinds that you'll find there.